Hello everyone, welcome back to the Preternaturally Inclined Podcast. This is Plasma Part 2. Ride the lightning so we can break on through to the other side. Hey, guys, we're going to get pretty crazy. There's going to be a lot of weird theories about the essence of the soul and like the origins of even like the world soul and all this nonsense today. So, let's start with the question of, have you ever wondered... How life is sparked. Like, is life a simple, biological, and chemical inevitability? Or is there really more to the story? If an immortal soul can exist, where is it? What is it? On Wikipedia, you check it out. And a soul is determined as being the spiritual, immaterial part of a human being or animal. Regarded as immortal. The essence or embodiment of a specific quality. So, he was the soul of discretion. You know, he didn't he didn't talk to anybody about anything. He was the soul of discretion. And, um... In the Greek times, they talked about it being, uh... Psyche. Uh, psyching. To breathe. Kind of a thing. These are supposed to be, like, the mental abilities of a living person. You know, the reason, the character, the feeling... All that sort of a thing. and Depending on which philosophical system that you adhere to, the soul can be mortal or immortal. And in the Judeo-Christian thing, it's basically set up where human beings have immortal souls. And even though immortality is disputed within like Judaism, and it might have been kind of influenced by Plato at the time, uh, Thomas Aquinas always talked about the soul or like anima, um, you know, being attributed to all organisms. And he kind of argued that human souls, only human souls are uh, immortal. That was Thomas Aquinas who kind of came up with that sort of an idea. Or at least most notably, you know, Hinduism or Jainism will say things like biological organisms have these souls like uh, what they term Atman or Jiva. I'm not sure how you pronounce it, but it's this vital principle like prana. And uh, Aristotle did as well with these kind of uh, things where he talked about that everybody kind of has souls and the biological organisms, everything kind of has like a, a prana, a soul, like an atman, a jiva, or however you pronounce those. And some of them say that like non-biological stuff like rivers, mountains, rocks, and all that have souls. And that's called animism. Anyway, we talk about these Greek philosophers, like you got Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and all that sort of thing. They understood the soul, and then here they have like a little Greek pronunciation, which was basically psyche. It has like a logical faculty, the exercise of which was the most divine of human actions. And even uh, at his defense trial, Socrates summarized, he taught nothing than an exhortation of fellow Athenians to excel in matters of the psyche since all bodily goods are dependent on such excellence. And that's a quote from uh, from Wikipedia. And then it kind of gets in a little bit into uh, anima mundi, which is the idea of like a world soul. It kind of connects all living organisms that are on the planet. And um, the world soul, and the Latin version is anima mundi, a lot of people tend to think it's it's got this intrinsic connection between all the living things on the planet and that sort of a thing. It relates to our world in the same way that the soul is connected to the human body. Even Plato kind of talked about this idea, and he really adhered to the idea of it and the concept of it. 
And in a lot of the Neoplatonic systems, it was a pretty important component at the times. But we might be able to say that if that is the case, then this world's like a living being endowed with a soul and intelligence, like one of those weird Gaia theories or whatever. But but bear with me on this, because like if it's a single visible livable entity and it's got all the other livable entities, all the living entities, and then all by their nature are related. Even the Stoics back in the days, they always kind of thought of it as the only vital force in the universe, uh, this world soul kind of a thing. Concepts in Eastern philosophy, when you got like the Brahman Atman kind of a thing of Hinduism, and then you got like that whole Buddha nature and Mahayana Buddhism, which is kind of like, I mean, that's that's questionable. But I mean, even like the Qi or a lot of schools with like, they talk about Yin Yang Taoism and all that sort of thing. A lot of them really do talk about kind of like a world soul connection and like... Even even when you get later on into, I guess you could say more modern, but uh, not necessarily modern. So like you can talk about 1840s, we had these hermetic philosophers. There was like Paracelsus, uh, Spinoza, Baruch Spinoza. You had Leibniz, Gottfried Leibniz, uh, Friedrich Schilling. And then Hegel would talk about uh, the Geist, the spirit slash mind kind of a thing. Even uh, the poet Ralph uh, Waldo Emerson, he had this poem called The Oversoul in 1841. And it was basically uh, influenced by that whole concept of anima mundi, the universal soul. And like we were saying before, it's it's like the um, in the 1960s with that whole Gaia, mother nature thing that James, James Lovelock kind of came up with. It's, you know, it's fairly similar to that. But even you can get into a little bit weird of a, there's like some Kabbalah connections here. And um, basically what's going on with these Kabbalah connections they talk about is... There's a parallel kind of concept, and they call it, and this is going to be just destroyed, so forgive me, but it's Chokma Yala. Uh, and it's basically Chokma, uh, C-H-O-K-H-M-A-H, and I-L-A, uh, apostrophe H. But anyway, it's like the all-encompassing supernal wisdom. It transcends, it orders all things, it vitalizes all things in creation and whatnot. And they interviews this rabbi, Rabbi uh, Nachman of Breslov, it says. His, his idea was that this sublime wisdom may be apprehended by uh, perfect Zadik, which is one of their, like, holy mans. So it can be, like, kind of channeled by one of their holy mans, sort of a thing. And this Zadik, which, again, is a terrible pronunciation, but it has, it, it, he attains this cosmic consciousness when he kind of channels this sublime wisdom. So it's kind of like Gnosis, in a way. And uh, he is empowered to mitigate all the divisions between his conflicts and his creations. And it's, it's insane. He can see, like, the differences between all the evils and the goods and the souls. And he reaches that state of consciousness where it's, it's out of control. Um, but anyway, if we talk about this soul that the ancient mystics believe, like, if it does exist. So if we do have, say, a soul, an immortal soul or anything like that. And how exactly can we study it? How exactly can we identify it? Like how, even if we're going to like end up vilifying it or anything like that, how exactly are we going to vilify it? Uh, how are we going to make the soul a bad thing or uh, something to, you know, strive to have the immortal soul in this, in this area of the world. Don't strive to have that immortal soul in that area of the world. How do we give that, that kind of incentive? Well, we're going to need, so we're going to need photos like we're going to need uh, some kind of photographic photographic evidence of some kind and um 
They did have this one, and I mean, you may have heard it before, but it's like Kirlian, Kirlian. I want to say Kirlian, but it's Kirlian photography. And if you've never seen Kirlian photography, it's K I R L I A N. Go check it out. Check it out right now. There's some pretty awesome photos that they got with it. They got some really cool stuff coming off of like hands and leaves and all that sort of thing. And it's supposedly what's going to like depict an aura. And it, it was a kind of photography, like, it was popular back in the 70s and 80s. They would stimulate, like, sometimes they would use, like, Tesla coils to stimulate it and stuff. But let's get into how Carillion photography is really done. You know, it's basically, they took together a bunch of photographic techniques, and they wanted to capture the phenomenon of electrical coronal discharges. Or maybe they didn't want to, they just sort of discovered it. But it's named after Semyon Carillion, and in 1939... I guess he did accidentally discover that if an object is put on a photographic plate and you connect that plate to a high voltage source, then you get an image on that plate. And then some people call this thing uh, electrography, electrophotography, corona discharge photography, bioelectrophotography, and even one one of these guys came up with one uh, gas discharge visualization. I mean, all these different ones, you know, all these different ideas about Carillion and a lot of um, mainstream scientific research has done on it. A lot of parapsychology research and shit has been done on it. But essentially, in a huge extent, they use it in alternative medicine research. Basically, like, your Karelian auras are off or something, but we'll get into that. Um, there was a check, though. In the very, very beginnings of how photography was kind of, like, aimed towards, like, you know, photographing a soul or something. There was this check, um, B. Navratil... And he, he had the word electrography. And seven years later, there was a French guy, H. Beraduk, and he had electrographs of hands and leaves. Well, then you had a Russian guy, Yakov Narakej Iodko, which is probably terrible, forget my pronunciation. He showed that you can do electrography when he was over there in the Russian Technical Society at the fifth uh, expedition over there. And, I mean... Even in 1939, you have two more checks. Uh, S. Pratt, J. Schlemmer, they had po- photographs that had a glow around leaves. And then, in the same year as 1939, then the, the electrical engineer, Simon Kerlian, came out with his wife, Valentina. And he kind of developed it, basically, after observing his patient in a hospital that was receiving treatment. And it was from a high-frequency electrical generator. And when they noticed that the electrodes were closer to the skin, there was a glow like a neon discharge tube kind of a thing. So they kept conducting experiments with photographic film, and they put it on top of the conducting plate, and then a conductor was attached to a hand, a leaf, or something like that. They put those conductors uh, next to each other, and then they energized them with this high-frequency, high-voltage source. And then they made these photos um, with like a silhouette of the object with an aura of light. Again, check these photos out. I wish I could describe them. It's like veins of light coming off of these objects. It's pretty cool. And then in 1958, they reported it for the first time. It was pretty much unknown until 1970. And then uh, Lynn Schroeder and Sheila Ostrander, they published a book. was known as Psychic Discoveries Behind the Iron Curtain where high-voltage electrophotography became known to the general public as Curlian photography. And little interest was generated in the whole Western science community, I mean, but the Russians did have a conference in uh, the Kazakh State University in 1972 about it. Um, 
They used it in the former Eastern Bloc in the 70s. And the whole Corona discharge glow was subjected to a high voltage field and it was referred to as a Kirlian aura in Russia and Eastern Europe. And even this guy, Viktor Adamenko, this Belarusian scientist, he wrote up this dissertation where uh, it, was, it was entitled The Research of These High-Frequency Electric Discharge is Kirillian Effect Images. And the study of the researchers called the Kirillian Effect was conducted by this guy, Viktor Inushin, at the Kazakh State University. So then early on, uh, Thelma Moss and Kendra Johnson, Center for Health Sciences in the UCLA, they had a lot of extensive research into it, the Kirillian photography. She led an independent, unsupported parapsychology laboratory, and they shut it down in 1979. So, I mean, this whole photography is kind of set up where they create the print photographs and they use the high voltage to create them. So, I mean, you have to take the photographic film and you put it on charge of the plate. Or you put it on top of a, what's called like a metal discharge plate. Then you photograph whatever you're putting in front, like a hand or a leaf or anything like that. You put it right on top of the film, and then they put high voltage momentarily through it, and then boom, it creates that exposure. So this corona discharge, and they call it corona, which is interesting. We'll get to that later, about the object in the plate, the high voltage, is captured by the whole film. And uh, when they develop them, it becomes kind of like one of those Karelian photograph uh, objects that you'll see, sort of like the leaf or the hand. So they use color. They use they use color film, and then they calibrate it, and it has faithful colors when you expose it to normal light. And so, the discharges they interact with these minute variations in the different layers of dye in the film, and they result in a wide variety of colors depending on the local intensity of the discharge. And this is this is all from Wikipedia, but. When they use digital imaging techniques and they record the light, they can see the photons emitted during the corona discharge kind of a thing. And this is, it's, it takes further research to get into this, but like, they can take coins, keys, all that sort of thing, and uh, cold water pipe, all these sort of things, and then they can create these corona discharge coming off of them. It's pretty, it's pretty amazing. It's some sort of, we'll get into that later maybe, but... You don't have to use a camera or a lens, basically. It, it's it's a contact printing thing, so it just prints right onto it, like literally like the ring kind of nonsense sort of thing. But they are using uh, technology like with the plate and stuff like that. And, I mean, they've been able to make really cool art with these sort of things. If you ever see, like, uh, there's a lot of fractals that have that Karelian stuff behind them. It's, it's pretty awesome. And there's a lot of pseudoscientific stuff about it, and I'm not going to get into that. And a lot of people will get into about how you can determine someone's mental health based on their sweating and the Karelian discharge. And I mean, I'm not entirely sure. I came across a couple of those in the journals, and I didn't see if they were peer-reviewed or anything like that. So we get a little more into it, and when... We have experiments in 1976 where they use the same kind of photography on, on human tissue, living, like, you know, human fingertips. But there was variation in the in the streamer length and the curvature and color. And there was this guy, Konstantin Korotikov. He had this technique where it was very similar to the curling in photography, but he called it gas discharge visualization. And basically the whole setup of it was... He had hardware and software where he could directly record, process, and interpret these images in his computer. 
And if you go to his website, I mean, a lot of it promotes his device and then all the research that you can use it in, in uh, medicine, like in, in the medical context and whatnot. And Isabella Chelsesica, but this, this lady, she was at the Institute of Architecture and Textiles in Poland. She used her camera to evaluate the effects of human contact with textiles and, you know, biological factors like heart rate and blood pressure and sort of things like when they touch specific textiles and the coronal discharge images. And they, they captured a bunch of weird uh, images of subjects and all the fingertips and sort of things like that. And, I mean, a lot of this is probably fair nonsense, but he does believe, or some people do believe, that he's one of the pioneers of electrographic photography. He thinks he can project the life force, or some people think... Some people claim that he claims he can project the life force and bioenergies of human beings onto these these um, recordings. And one of them where he has, where he refers to as the gas discharge visualization method. He had a person on the cusp of death as he died. And the footage was supposed to show the blue life leaving the body. And it's just, it's, it, you know, it created a lot of controversy. I'm pretty sure this article was back from 2007. It, you know, it's by far, everything has been debunked by now. But the concept behind it is fairly interesting where he thinks that there's a pattern. So the life force drains from the body from the heart first. And then it leaves the stomach. And then it leaves other areas from the groin. And then finally all these, the heart. But then sometimes it's not smooth. In a violent or unexpected death, you can see the soul going back to the body at sporadic intervals. Which could play into another weird ghost theory later, but... We'll get on to later on and later on. They get on to a little bit more in this research about Thelma Moss and the technique when she was at her tenure at UCLA. A lot of the lab was fairly unfunded and it just didn't go very well. She became pretty interested in Carillion photography and it measured the aura of a living being in her mind. And she went and did quite a bit of research with it. And, I mean, she didn't really get too much farther with her. But we go on and on and on and on. And when they have, like, a so-called demonstration as evidence with this thing, with the energy field involved, they take photographs of a picked leaf at certain intervals. And then as they watch the leaf wither, then they were thought that the leaf would have a, a, a corresponding decline in the, the strength of the aura. So the photographs would be less brilliant and have like less interesting things after a certain point. And then if they tore a section away from the leaf, then a faint image of where the missing section would remain when the second one was taken. So, I mean, if the, if the imaging surface, like the lens, is totally clean of like dust and moisture after the second one is, then no image will ever appear. I mean, there's no way that it would. So there's some, there's some speculations through it, and uh, Rubik... I'm not sure if this is Rubik's Cube, but there's this lady, Beverly Rubik. She talks about how the idea of a human biofield using the Carillion photography, it's kind of like the Chinese discipline of Qigong. Qigong, I, I'm, I, I have no idea how to pronounce this, but it's like a, a vitalistic energy like qi, qi, or however you pronounce that, and it, it permeates all living things. So that qi kind of has its own field, not just like everybody's normal electromagnetic field, like its own field. And, you know, some people's beliefs, it's been pretty discarded. But um, we'll get to that in a little bit, too. Because um, when you think about how these connections, when you talk about 
these Karelian photographs where they want to capture the soul and have like a real true photograph of the soul. How exactly are you going to take that and then put it and then, you know, connect it together with the so-called substance of the soul? How are you going to unlock like sort of the meaning of the soul and whatnot? Hang on a sec. Let's say there's quite a bit of connections between the cerebral cortex and the soul. The psyche, or whatever you want to call it, prana, admajiva, whatever you want to call it. Let's say that there's a pretty good connection between that. So if anything really exists beyond that whole realm of belief, it's on that, that, that edge of self-hypnosis where people kind of hypnotize themselves into believing things, I want to discover them. You know, like, if our souls are more or less like the engines to keep our consciousness, well, then what fuels our souls? Like, what, what are our souls made out of? But I mean, that's a, there's a lot of uh, a lot of speculation on all that spiritual stuff, like whether or not we have a soul or not. I mean, we'll see. You know, whether or not Karelian photographies really would indicate what the soul is and then have a, be a very like accurate representation of what it is. I mean, that that remains to be seen. But we're talking about plasma, like we said at the beginning. We got plasma on the mind today, and we talked about plasma in last week's episode, and we were kind of describing exactly what it was. It's like a very, it's an ionized gas. You see it in stars, and we went on ad infinitum about it. But uh, when we're talking about plasma today, we're going to start with lightning, and what lightning as a hot plasma is, and what lightning is in general. So it's an electrostatic discharge, and it occurs between. Two regions, always during a thunderstorm. And these two regions are always electrically charged. This discharge goes in between these two regions that are electrically discharged. You have IC, which is intracloud lightning, CC, which is between two clouds, cloud to cloud, and then, of course, uh, cloud to ground lightning. These charged regions in the atmosphere, they'll equalize themselves in this discharge, and then they call it a flash. And... They can call it strike, and that's if generally if it hits something on the ground sort of thing. Well, it creates light basically using what they call black body radiation. And then the very hot plasma created by the electron flow uh, will create that sound, that form of thunder, basically. Like that boom with that electron flow. And so lightning might not actually be heard, but it can always be seen when it's you know too far away. Everyone knows all that. But the sound is too far as the light can carry, basically. But lightning is fascinating, not just because we know so little about lightning and there's always these gaps and mysteries, and I will largely kind of ignore the gaps and the mysteries, but we will get into more about how lightning has upper atmospheric phenomenon a bit later. But they have these things called like elves and sprites. And I mean, if you study lightning at all, you'll see these things. They're these bursts of energies and then they're just shooting up way high above the clouds, you know. And they don't go like as high as say like the magnetosphere or anything like that. But these upper atmospheric lightning and this ionospheric lightning and all these sort of things, you can call them sort of this like short-lived electrical electrical breakdown phenomena and it goes way above the altitude of normal lightning so that's the whole idea it's upper atmospheric goes way way up and one source quotes upper atmospheric lightning is believed to be 
electrically induced forms of luminous plasma. That's probably Wikipedia, but, I mean, luminous plasma. We'll just call that aspect of the hot plasma connecting with the upper atmospheric plasma, luminous plasma. We'll get into that later. But the preferred usage of the term, and this is, this is getting real technical, it's transient luminous event, so TLE. We can call them TLEs from now on, or we'll just do that. Why not? And that's just the whole thing about the various types of all the electrical discharge phenomena. We'll get through those really quick. We'll just breeze through those and run out of time. So uh, it happens all in the upper atmosphere, and it has all the several characteristics that you would see with all of the more familiar ones. Well, very quick. They were discovered by this guy, the Scottish physicist, C.T.R. Wilson. What he thought was that electrical breakdown would occur high in the atmosphere, high above thunderstorms. And in the decades that would follow, these high-altitude electrical discharges, all these aircraft pilots were seeing and all these meteorologists, and then they had their first visual evidence um, in 1989. So all these optical signatures were just sort of like collecting together, and they eventually called them sprites. And that was basically, they were trying to avoid the whole things like they didn't know what the properties were. And then they had red sprites and blue jets and all this sort of thing. And this was back in 1994. Well, these sprites are these large-scale electro- electrical discharges, and they occur way above uh, thunderstorm cloud, like a cumulonimbus. Remember up? That little kid, he was like, cumulonimbus, like one of those giant, giant uh, thunderstorms. Remember that? And then uh, you have all these weird shapes that can come from it, like weird jellyfish shapes. I mean, you've got to check them out. They're amazing. But they were essentially triggered by these positive lightning between the thunderground and the ground. So they named them after the sprite, like from Shakespeare's Ariels and Puck, and they also use it as a, as an acronym for stratospheric mesospheric perturbations resulting from intense thunderstorm electrification. Sprite. So, uh, they're reddish orange, and sometimes they're greenish blue. They're pretty awesome, and then they have these hanging tendrils just all jellyfishing down, you know, and then these arcing branches just shooting out from above, and it's. When they first start, there's this reddish halo that happens sometimes, and they can happen in these big-ass clusters that are anywhere from 31 miles or 56 miles way above, you know? And these things have been witnessed thousands of times since we've been, you know, noticing them and whatnot. And a lot of times, I mean, they've been held responsible for unexplained accidents where they got a high-altitude... You know, or if it's some like experimental aircraft or whatever, and when they're flying above a thunderstorm, um, <clears throat> I, again, check out photos of these; they're pretty awesome. The other uh, phenomena they call are these jets, and it's another kind of TLE. Uh, they are very similar; they're kind of tropospheric and lightning kind of a thing. They have this cloud-to-air discharge; it's inside of a thunderstorm, and it goes upwards. So, I mean, they're fairly connected, but not necessarily connected with what we're going to call, like, the sprites, which go, you know, generally much higher than these ones. But they got two times. They got uh, blue ones and the gigantic ones. The blue ones are usually coming from the normal lightning discharges. So those are the ones that are in between the upper positive charge region and the thundercloud, and then the screening layer that's negative below it. So those are ones that just happen more or less in the cloud sort of a thing. And, you know, correct me if I'm wrong on that, I could be. And they happen pretty rarely. Uh, fewer than 100 of them by 2007 had ever happened. 
well, these blue starters that they also see. They're um, when they discovered them when they were doing nighttime research around thunderstorms. And they're these weird new luminous phenomenon. They look like blue jets, but they're shorter and brighter, and they only go up about you know twenty kilometers. So the blue starters are like the blue jets that don't quite make it. This one, Doctor V. Pasco, he's an associate professor of electrical engineering. He did say. But then they got these gigantic jets. They got one of these over there that, that happened in Argentina in Oro Verde over 2014. On Groundhog Day, uh, these blue jets, these things were pretty fascinating. They get gigantic. And then when they get to the area where it's the upper positive charge region and the negative screen lane above that, these gigantic jets, they appear in between those two regions and then go straight up. And it's, I mean, it's pretty, those are the ones that go up to the highest of the highest. And one that they saw on September 14th at the Arecibo Observatory in 2001, they had this gigantic one that went up 43 miles into the atmosphere. It was double the height of anyone they'd ever seen. Um, it was it was located right above a thunderstorm, and it only lasted, you know, right under a second. I mean, it was it was barely there sort of a thing. And at first, they first initially observed it, it was 50,000 miles a second. And it was, you know, like you would imagine, maybe that's meters, but I'm saying, you know, very similar to uh, typical lightning. And then it went up to 160,000, and then 270,000, and then it split in two with speeds of at least 2 million meters per second or miles per second, I'm not sure which, but in the atmosphere. And then it spread out in a bright burst of light. So when these things head out, they're they are cruising. So they're they're more or less like exponentially building up speed when these things whoosh, they just shoot straight out. Okay. And then once in 2002, July 22nd, there's a lot of tubes going on. They had five of them that were 35 to 45 miles in length. Those were over the South China Sea. And then on 2012 and November 10th, the China Bulletin recorded they had one that was really amazing. February 2nd, 2014, again, that was the one that we were talking about before, I believe, with the Oro Verde of Argentina. 2016, there was one that happened in uh, the Shikengong Peak in Guadang Province. I believe that's uh, Provence. That's China, right? Yeah, China. <laughs> and then they have this pretty cool photograph where this photographer, Jeff Miles, he had four gigantic jets shooting up over Australia, and this happened in 2017. So we'll talk a little bit about elves. No, not those elves. They're these emission of light and very low frequency perturbations due to electromagnetic pulse sources. I'm not sure how that translates into elves. It's E-L-V-L-F-E-P-S, but whatever. We'll call them elves. And... Basically, what they'll do is there'll be this dim, flattened glow that'll go about 250 miles in diameter, and it'll last for like a millisecond. And they occur 62 miles above the thunderstorms. And for a long time, they didn't even know what color it was, but now they kind of figured out, well, it's pretty much red. The first time they ever recorded them was back off of a shuttle mission in French Guiana, October 7th, 1990. Whew. But we'll get on to a little bit more weird shit. Because that was a lot of information. And I'm sorry. But it was very important about how we understand that these, these sprites and these elves and whatever that they're calling them, these quasars, radio galaxies, 
galaxies, they all have this plasma radiation sort of a concept built in with them. So these blue jets and all this, there's always this plasma connection where we were talking about them basically being forms of luminous plasma. Well, we'll get a bit more into portals. We'll start talking about portals a bit. And if you go to NASA, I know, never a straight answer, but you go to NASA, whatever, you can check it out. They have this one that it was back, I believe, in like 2007, where they talk about these magnetic portals they found in the magnetosphere, which is, you know, technically made up of plasma. So, Jack Scudder is quoted in this article as calling them X-points, or electron diffusion regions. I don't know what the hell that means, but... This guy's a plasma physicist at the University of Iowa, so I'm going to take his word for it, right? He says they're places in the magnetic field of Earth, and it connects to the magnetic field of the sun. And basically, these places on Earth connects to the field of the sun. They create this uninterrupted path that leads to our own planet, to the sun's atmosphere, 93 million miles away. So it's basically an instantaneous portal going from the other to the other. One of their Themis spacecraft, which is T-H-E-M-I-S, one of their spacecrafts that NASA put out and then Europe put out one called these cluster probes, they've seen these portals open and close, or at least through their observations have suggested that these magnetic portals open and close dozens of times a day. And so essentially what that means is since they're so far out there, a few tens of thousands of kilometers from Earth, where the geomagnetic field reaches the onrushing solar wind. They're right there on that cusp, right on that, like, just right in that razor's edge between the geomagnetic field that's made out of plasma and then the solar wind that would destroy us without that geomagnetic field. Those portals are small and short-lived when they're on that, but then they have these other ones which they describe as yawning, vast, and sustained. And tons of energetic particles can flow through them and it can heat up the upper the Earth's upper atmosphere and create like a bunch of geomagnetic storms. And then they'll have a bunch more like brighter polar auroras. I mean, they had one issue at one point, and the article is contradictory in itself. It's NASA, but it says just one problem: finding them. Magnetic portals are invisible, unstable, and elusive. They open and close without warning, and there are no th- signposts to guide us in. Notes Scudder. Quote, unquote, and there are no signposts to guide us in. But then it says right after that, actually, there are signposts, and Scudder has found them. So it's NASA, but screw the article that contradicts itself. His whole theory that he's coming up with is is where the portals will form in the process of magnetic reconnection. Whatever that means. There's these mingling lines of magnetic force between the sun and earth, and they crisscross, and they join, and then they create these portals, and these X-points is exactly where this crisscross is happening, you know? So when you join together these magnetic fields, it propels these jets of charged particles from one to the other, and it makes this electronic electron diffusion region. And the only way he could figure it out was he had to check out the space probe that orbited Earth like 10 years ago. There was this polar spacecraft that was in the Earth's magnetosphere, and this is, this is quoting Scudder, He said it encountered many X-points during its mission. During the NASA's polar spacecraft, which was back in 1998, it had these clues where they could find these magnetic X-points. It carried these sensors that were very similar to, 
a different spacecraft they reference here, MMS. And he decided to see how it looked like with the polar spacecraft. He used the data, this is quoting him, using polar data, we have found five simple combinations of magnetic field and energetic particle measurements that tell us when we come across an X point or an electron diffusion region. Just call it a portal. But he says a single spacecraft proper, properly instrumented can make these measurements. But come on, guys, just call it a fucking portal. But, you know, it's an electron diffusion region. So we have to determine exactly what it is. But a single member of this spacecraft called the MMS Constellation could use the diagnostics and find one and alert other members. And so when they had the, the planners going out for this, because I believe it was a it was a it was a mission that had gone on to then fourteen. I didn't I didn't find anything on the, the upcoming research with that, but his work cut short the process and then he can get they, they can get to work straight ahead. And the best portals of fiction can kind of be idealized with these portals, essentially. And they can find them when they have these new signposts by checking out the electromagnetic diffusion regions. It's it's pretty insane. Check out the article. Um, I can include links in the in the YouTube or whatever. But look, we're running a bit low on time, so we'll get to the very very core of all this crazy nonsense. If the soul has a specified sort of like soul particle that's beyond anything that I want to research. I'm kind of thinking of it more of as like a, we'll say like a plasmic or, or like a, a gas, like your soul is farts, yo. No, I'm just saying, if you were a human soul and you wanted to go to the magnetosphere, which is where these portals are, and like if you're a human soul and you want to travel up to heaven, quote unquote, right? You would have to go 34,800 miles just to get to the magnetosphere, and then another 93 million to get to the nearest star, which is the sun. Blah, 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 blah. So that's kind of like when they include these portals, it more or less makes sense that if that were to happen, you would have to have portals. And in the last episode, we had talked about how plasma can go through space in weird ways. And, you know, when we talked about uh, the sun flares and they were they were uh, measuring them and it, it was unexpected it's kind of like try and predict how the aurora borealis will act it's it's very very random kind of a thing i want to get into something a bit crazy because the human soul comes into play with everyone's belief a sort of at the very moment of death it's important so at the very moment of death we tend to see that certain things will happen. People will say that the light will leave the eyes of the recently deceased. You know, everybody will lose their control of their bladders and bowels. They get this death rattle, convulsions. There's this weird sense of calm a lot of people will report. I mean, it's all grim. It's all very grim. You can call it like a, a final dance, a, a dance macabre. Who knows? But you might be curious at this point exactly how would plasma be our souls how does that necessarily work out if our souls are uh very rooted in in religion and if plasma is very misunderstood and oftentimes very widely applied term like we said in the last episode this has nothing to do with blood plasma blood plasma is something where 
they term it plasma, but it's essentially mostly water, and we won't get into that. That could have something to do with a little bit in, in a later episode, but right now we're going to talk about how the gas form of plasma could necessarily be a soul. No, science is unclear. And everybody, I would have to say, most everybody I've met, they're unclear whether people even have a soul or not. But one thing we do know is the properties of plasma. On a quick side note, and I know this is way, way going beyond time, but on a quick side note, there's this Canadian TV show that came out called Beyond. It was one of those paranormal TV shows that, um, you know, just popping up at random, trying to cash in on it, like, but... And it had some pretty cool episodes. And one of the episodes, they had an orb leaving a body at the time of death. And this this may have been one of the Karelian photographs, uh, evidence things that we were talking about earlier. I'm not sure. And I don't know if in the, a documentary they called them plasma orbs or not. But I'm going to call them plasma orbs that are coming out of those people's heads. And I'm probably 100% sure that the video was fake. Or that the orb that they were filming was just a bit of dust. So I'm not even going to get into the authenticity of the video because, you know, it's probably fake. But it kind of got me thinking because we have that weird trope where everybody says that you lose 21 grams uh, at death. The human body will lose 21 grams. And I'm not going to get into the validity of how all that works. Like, you know, uh, how exactly are they weighing a person right after death? I mean... They delete the urine and feces, and like all of that goes into that equation. I'm not going to get into that estimate. But if we can truly verify that we lose 21 grams, and nobody has any idea where it goes, or even what it is that gets lost, I say we lose those 21 grams, what we're losing is the plasma. And again, that's 21 grams not counting us uh, emptying our bladder and crapping ourselves, not counting us... Uh, emptying our bowels of gas, not counting any of those weights. Those are just factored into just naturally being there, I suppose. <laughs> but if our body contains plasma, again, not like the blood plasma, but kind of like an ionized gas that sort of leaks out on the moment of death, could that be witnessed? You know, could we use that Carillion photography? Or should we use some kind of like filter or some kind of infrared camera or some sort of, I don't know, like a new electromagnetic lens and it would demonstrate how this electrical discharge, kind of like a Carillion photograph, but you'd be able to see it with everything in live motion. So you'd be able to have like an aura camera. I don't know. I guess essentially that's the that's the Carillion photograph or even the, the other one we were talking about, the gas discharge photograph earlier. It's kind of like that, but you know, Maybe an MRI. I couldn't find any articles on people dying inside of an MRI and, you know, what their brains could show. But the next topic we'll kind of get on to about is mycelium. And again, when we talk about the 21 grams getting lost, when we talk about very uh, intense topics such as death and what happens at the moment of death, these are all connected, and I'm going to bring them back together at the end. So, mycelium. It's generally considered, I mean, I'm no expert on any of this. I'm no scientist. But it's kind of this strange fungus. And a lot of the research that I come into is, comes from this guy, Paul Stamets. He's one of the foremost mycologists in mycelium research. 
And if you want to learn more about Mycelium, I mean, after this, you might. But I'd recommend checking him out on his guest appearance in the Joe Rogan Experience. He's got a lot of TED Talks and he's got lectures and that sort of thing. It's endlessly fascinating. You know, and he explains it way, way better than I can. But, I, you know, here goes. And this, this is from Scientific American. I include this link as well. But it basically talks about how the next time you buy those white, mushroom, white button mushrooms... You got to remember, oh, it's cute and bite-sized, but they got a relative out in the West that has some 2,384 acres in Oregon, Blue Mountains of Oregon, okay? This gigantic fungus would make up 1,665 football fields. So that's four square miles almost of turf. That's how much this thing makes up. When they discovered this back in 1998, it was thought to be the record holder for the world's largest organism. And it was believed to be most by the 110-foot, 200-ton blue whale. That's what most people thought the largest organism was. Well, with this current growth rate, this fungus is thought to be 2,400 years old. But it could be as ancient as 8,650 years. So it could necessarily be one of the largest and oldest. Okay. Well... Essentially, what makes these funguses grow is a combination of these good genes and stable environments. It, it, it helps its creeping existence just go straight through these millennia. They compared this. Uh, they compared the fungal genes in a test for these telltale signs of inbreeding to figure out well how exactly this day so you know they took these heterozygous heterozygous strips of DNA and then they watched them become homozygous, and that's when they realized they had struck it big. The one mushroom they found this one that was in armorilia balbosa they found it and it weighed over a hundred tons and this one mushroom was 1500 years old and everyone thought well you know they thought they were big no one had idea they were that big and when we think of mushrooms essentially yeah they are mushrooms but they are also at the same time it's a very intense network but after that there was even a bigger one found in colorado by terry shaw uh, the U.S. Forest Service, and then Ken Russell in Washington in 1992. And, I mean, there's covered over 1,500 acres of area, okay? And that's important for later because, you know, they had one over in uh, 2003 in Oregon with Catherine Parks. She found it. She published a discovery of a 2,384 acre of the Amarillia Estoy. And, again... Check out Paul Stamets. He knows way more about all this than I do. But the discovery of all these giant specimens, it, it kind of rekindles a debate in exactly what makes an individual organism. Okay? Is it a set of individual genetically identical cells in communication with another? You know, is it this or that or the other? I mean, when, when they are in communication with one another, they have this common purpose. And they can at least coordinate themselves to do something. So are all these connected within their own little weird network? But when you look at it, the giant blue whale and the fungus, they fit within that definition. And also, this 6,615-ton colony of the male quaking aspen, I believe, I used to know the name of what that was called. I forget the name of that one. But it's a male quaking aspen tree in Utah. It covers 107 acres. So it's kind of all connected in its own sort of a thing. It's like a one-organism sort of a thing. Anyway. These, these farms, when they have them, they can have like 1 million pounds of these things in a year. So 
the the ones that they grow are like basically like house size. It's pretty crazy. But anyway, humongous things. That's generally how fungi kind of work. Essentially, like it's not very rare. Like these kind of things are fairly normal when you think about it in the sense of right underneath our feet. And again, you'll have to reference Paul Stamets, but he has one quote where he says that there are nearly 500 miles of mycelial network underneath our feet, like a mycelial connection of fungus underneath our feet at all times. So this whole connection to life is pretty well hidden. And the mycelial, I guess you can call it network, even though that's like a Star Trek thing, the mycelial matrix, it makes up the majority of the biomass on the planet Earth. And that, I, I determined that, that, I may have heard that from Paul Stamets, but that is my own theory, that uh, mycelium makes up 100% the largest, and this I believe to be 100% true, the largest biomass on the Earth. If it's one of the oldest and heaviest organisms next to a aspen tree or a blue whale, I mean, fungus literally probably makes up huge, huge quantities. Well, when you check out mycelium under a microscope, under like specific awesome uh, electron microscopes, and he, and he did include some of this footage on uh, the Joe Rogan experience, so check that one out when he, when he was a guest on that podcast. You took it on a microscope, and you put it on a high enough magnification, magnification, there's these little electrical discharges going through them. And, you know, as of right now, they're unsure as to whether or not the discharge is kind of like a form of language or, you know, an energy dispersal system that goes throughout the matrix, or, in my theory, it's some, like, plasmic energy going through the system, okay? Well, this network kind of, I would say it absorbs a lot of plasma that can leave, like, dying bodies and it goes straight into it. It might take it and disperse it back into the trees. It might take it and disperse it back in the plants. Like, you know, Lion King circle, life nonsense, right? But here's the whole thing I think about the, the concept of it. It would be one of the largest organisms in the biosphere, the mycelium. We don't understand that. If it's one of the largest organisms in the biosphere, it would kind of be the circulatory system of the planet, more or less. Uh, when the plasma, let's just say, the plasma that's in the mycelium goes through the circular system of the tree, then it's kind of flowing in a loop. Or if the plasma goes through the circular system, circulatory system of the plant, then it goes into a flute. Into this like crazy weird loop thing where it gets more or less like trapped in the plant. Or or all of that's complete nonsense. And maybe trees and flora, they all have the same fate of uh, sentient life. And it may just collapse into the system with utter decay after the corpse is, is just sitting on the ground, you know? But at that point, the mycelial system will kind of contain the energy that's bled out by all the beings. Before we get into a little bit more of this, about how the mycelium kind of absorbs the energy that leaves bodies, like sort of absorbs the soul. Before we even talk about what I would term a ridiculous soul vessel, okay? Let's do a quick rundown of what we talked about. So far, we've reached in a lot of weird different topics. We were talking about mycelium. We were talking about all sorts of weirdness. We were talking about how lightning has this, this weird plasmic phenomenon. We were talking about how the idea of what the soul was. The idea of how the, the soul could be captured by Karelian photographs. What exactly does all of this have to do with each other? Well, 
my idea is that the mycelium, the ubiquitous fungus on the earth that makes up the largest biomass on the earth, whether the vessel of, say, a human soul or plant soul or anything like that, whether the vessel is like a tree or this massive network beneath our feet of, of the ancient biomass, once you fill that vessel with enough, I guess you could say, soul plasma or life force or energy or whatever, that will have to bleed back into the source. So you need the lightning strike. What the lightning strike will do is it takes the plasma from the mycelial network or from the tree. It steals it from the tree, you know, basically any random spot where lightning strikes and it takes it directly up. And I know, like, look, I know I'm wildly speculating. This is a tap-out moment. If you can handle what goes on from after this, good for you. As they say in the last podcast, the left, you'll get a gold star if you can finish this crazy, massive unknowns. Great. Great if you can handle it. But if not, if not, great. But here goes, okay? Plasma, or the soul, or plasmic thought form, whatever it is, it leaves our body at exactly the same rate as it entered our body at birth. Or conception, or whatever. Conception seems more likely. That's where the soul pops in. But once it leaves, it absorbs directly into the earth, into that whole mycelial network shit. Inside that mycelial network, you could possibly you know, like connect with the anima mundi, or the world soul, and then that would sort or less trap that plasmic energy just for a bit, until that boom, until that stroke of doom, until that lightning comes. And when that lightning comes, oh shit fires hot plasma right up into the sky and it produces these various blue jets and this upper atmospheric phenomenon these tles we were talking about earlier and like we were saying earlier upper atmospheric lightning these tles we were talking about these are electrically induced forms of luminous plasma so these these lightning strikes which essentially ride the lightning these lightning strikes, which take the souls into the planet, will fire that phenomenon from the planet at the high speeds with, like we were saying before, the jets going at 500 million, 500,000 miles per second or meters per second. Let's just say meters. It goes 500,000, then it goes 270,000, and then it goes, or no, so it goes 500,000, then it goes 160,000, then it goes 270,000, and then it's sped upwards with these of 2 million. So these let's just say plasmic phenomena, they're firing from the planet at extreme rates of speed. Well, where do they go? It says, where it spread out in a bright burst of light when they were, when they were observing one of these jets spreading out, okay? Well, I say they go into those magnetic portals we discussed earlier. These jets head straight into these magnetic portals. They're in the magnetosphere. And I know, look, the magnetosphere is 34 thousand miles away 35,000 miles roughly from the location it's way fucking up there it's way up there okay but the high altitude phenomenon that goes up it's about 60 or 70 miles high so it's nothing but at that speed when they get up to say like that 200 million meters per second or miles per second or whatever that is they can go at any rate you know then that's pretty quick they can get there so i'm saying that these sprites will send energy all the way into the magnetosphere and then those will send them back to the sun so let's wrap it up we're almost at an hour here and i don't know if i have a belief 
in the immortal soul. I did not dive deeply into any theological or Buddhist sense of the immortal soul. I understand this soul, to me, is more or less the sense of your life force. That's the sense of your strength. That's what gives you your personality. That gives you your gumption. You know, it, I hate to say it, but the soul to me is more of like a Simpsons trope. You know, if you lose your soul, the door won't open for you at the grocery store or some nonsense. But maybe everything has a soul. Maybe it does. You know, immoral or otherwise. And maybe we can quantify these souls with enough research. Not just curling in photography or other like forms of photography that can be easily, um, you know, debunked, I hate to say, but very easily debunked certain forms. I wouldn't trust them very far. Um, so maybe we can figure out. Maybe we can get enough instruments, we can get enough research into it, we can verify beyond a doubt that souls or plasma or energy or whatever it is, maybe we can verify beyond a doubt that they are real and what they are for that matter. I have a strong suspicion I'm completely wrong about it. I have a strong suspicion that I'm completely missing the mark and misunderstanding plasma, but what if I'm right? What if our souls or whatever have a strong kinship with the fire that lives in lightning, the explosions which resonate from the sun? What if we truly have a fire from within? Thanks, guys. Leave a comment. It totally prove me wrong. Prove me wrong that our souls are not trapped in trees which get struck by lightning. <laughs> no. But let's just say, let's just say, for example, that that is true. Let's say that our souls get trapped into a mycelial network, as Star Trekky as that sounds. Let's say our souls get trapped after death, and that's like your in-between state. That's your purgatory. That's your light at you know your tunnel at the end of the light. You're just sitting there waiting to get to that light, and the minute you hit that light, you enter the source. You go back to the sun, and how you do that is when the lightning strikes the ground carries it up all the way up to the upper atmospheric phenomenon as a sprite, shoots it out to the magnetosphere, enters those yawning portals that they were talking about earlier, those yawning portals up there, shoots it to the sun and back. I mean, after all, the sun is plasma. Most things in, in the universe are plasma. Research plasma, people. That really is the future, especially like last episode we were talking about with plasma energy, fusion energy, Cold fusion will be the future of, in my opinion, and in my prediction, cold fusion is exactly where we need to head to create not necessarily a perpetual energy, but some sort of energy that is necessary and sustainable, and there's an on and off switch, pretty instantaneous on and off switch. Again, I'm not too into the fusion energy thing, and I'm not too exactly sure what's going on with that. But again, like I said, leave a comment. If you like, and join the Preternatural Research Team. Tell me what 